this uh, class is on Justin, which we call the philosopher. In, uh, in, in Western church, he's known as Justin Martyr, so that perhaps that's more familiar to you. Uh, we call him the philosopher because that's what he was. He was a uh, Greek, uh, actually a Platonic philosopher, uh, who became Christian, and there was uh, a number of people like that who make up a group that we we call by a, a particular name known as apologists. Of course, in English, uh, when you say apology, it means you're you're sorry for something that you did or something. But uh, in this case, the term apologist refers to those who are defenders, particularly of the Christian faith. Okay, so this there's a whole group of writers, um, and you still can study apologetics in some places, you know, so that you can go out and uh, defend Christianity in the in the world. But it, it particularly refers to a group of writers in the second century, and to some extent applies to certain works of later writers that are written for that purpose. The apologists, and particularly there, among the apologists, there are certain uh, bishops, but not all of them are. Justin is, is a layman, as a, as a number of them are, and they are characterized mostly by being people of um, well-educated people of the Roman Empire. By the way, Justin's uh, living in the... I forget the... I don't have his birth, but uh, sometime in the first the first half of the second century. So from the time of probably uh, a child uh, growing up at the time of Ignatius, and um, becomes Christian in the 130s or before, maybe maybe around 130, and then uh, dies in 165. So just to give you a place for him, he's so he's kind of the generation following Ignatius. But um, the, the apologists, among, in early Christian literature, you have the, the New Testament, the apostolic fathers, the, such as Ignatius, people who knew the apostles or were living at that time. And then the next major group of Christian literature is the, is the group of all the apologists. And it's a very unusual group compared to most of the people we think of as, you know, as church fathers. Because most church fathers are bishops or uh, monks or something like that. <clears throat> this group is kind of their sort of distinctive characteristic is not one that pertains to the church. They're not particularly uh, you know, ordained, or, or but rather it refers to their secular education, and especially, uh, mostly these people are made up of, of non-Christian backgrounds, and they particularly would be part of what we would call sort of uh, the intellectual elite in the Roman Empire, people not like uh, our apostles who were you know, fishermen coming from Galilee, but these were were philosophers. A lot of them from Athens, people studying uh, at the at the foremost schools, and sometimes some most of them philosophers. Some of them are other professions. Um, this says like Tertullian could partly be considered part of, although he's not usually classed with them. He's a little later, but he's from comes. He was a lawyer, and some others have uh, Tatian was probably. Uh, Professor of uh, rhetoric or something that so they are educated people not necessarily all in philosophy but but largely philosophy and the the significant thing about them is that when as we go into Justin I'll explain they they were educated people who saw became Christian saw Christianity as the fulfillment of these educated values particularly connected to uh, Platonic, or just philosophy in general. Philosophy, we tend to think of 
philosophy is part of the pagan culture, but philosophy, the philosophy in the ancient world was saw itself as an alternative to pagan culture, that they were those who rejected the mythology of the gods and were looking to a higher spirituality, particularly uh, in Platonism, the uh, one idea of one god. And the uh, the major figure that that uh, will be important to our apologists is uh, Socrates. If, do you remember who he is? Uh, he was a teacher of Plato. He was someone in, living in Athens who was teaching the uh, young people of Athens to question pagan mythology and the ideas of the you know the pagan gods, which showed them as very immoral and full of passions, and giving this idea of a spiritual, one spiritual god. And so the result was that the Athenians uh, had him put to death. And Justin, as some of these others, they not he, he's not alone in this, but the apologists to see Socrates as kind of the kind of foreshadowing of the Christian martyrs. Because what they, what the people who are educated in this Platonic philosophy to look for a one spiritual God and a spiritual manner of life and to reject the immorality of traditional paganism, they, in this, the ones who become apologists are a, this group of, of these people who find Christianity to be the fulfillment of, of this uh, quest, let's say, of, of, of the uh, Platonic philosophers. So the in the, in, in the thing of, I guess, of philosophy, it's, it's kind of confusing two things. One, we think of philosophy as part of the Cape culture, and I'm saying, well, that's, that there's a difference, that there's this kind of rejection of, the, of pure of pagan religion by the philosophers. The other is that in modern times, we think of philosophy as purely an intellectual exercise. When somebody's a, you know, going to be a philosophy student, well, that means they want to sit around you know, thinking abstract thoughts and, and we... Uh, Think of that, you know, as kind of, sort of, that there must be very intelligent person, not not necessarily involved. Uh, we don't think of it as a religious thing at all. That there, that in a sense, philosophy is very compartmentalized from religion in the modern university. But for ancient people, um, philosophy is essentially a uh, religious uh, quest. It's and it's. It's, so the, the philosophical life is the religious life, and, in, and uh, many of the early Christian writers used that term, the philosophical life, to mean even the monastic life, because it, or to the, uh, because it means, uh, that's of course a little later, but they mean, by philosophical, they mean the spiritual life, the life of setting aside earthly concerns to seek Union with God, and this is in Plato that you're, you know, this striving for the vision of the good, um, which become kind of you could say, well, we, you know, as a Christian, if we're living the spiritual life, we're seeking the vision of God. So, having said that in preparation, let's now let's put uh, Justin into this. He, by the way, um, well, I'll, when we when we end up. Uh, Justin is martyred, but after his uh, death, his body was recovered by the Christians, and uh, a part of Justin's body is right here, actually, in our altar. So, uh, so we actually have him with us. So he's not so far away as you know we might think, uh, studying uh, the second century of the Roman Empire. But, but uh, did you say it's in the altar? Yes, it's in. We have uh, there's a cloth on the altar called the Antimensian. And it's uh, it's sewn into that. Yeah. Boom. Now, um, Justin uh, was was uh, born in in Shechem, which is in in Israel. At the time, though, he, as far as we know, he's not of Israelite background. His uh, father's name was. Uh, well, I think he had a Bacchus, and he had—I forget the now the others—but the, they were all Roman Greek names, uh, and of course Justin is a Latin name. The uh, 
the Shechem was the ancient Israelite uh, city where the uh, Hebrews were actually welcomed, first welcomed by, welcomed by the Canaanites there, and then it became an early capital of Israel when it broke away from Judah. But but it was later uh, renamed during uh, Roman times uh, as as Flavia Neapolis. And what happened during the uh, you know the, the Middle East was conquered by Alexander the Great, and so you had these Greek cities established as colonies throughout the Middle East, and then, uh, of course, under the Romans, but uh, Flavia Neapolis is what he lived in, and then Neapolis means the new city, right? And today, if you're when you're hearing the news and you're hearing about things going on in Palestine, you'll hear sometimes about Nablus. Well, Nablus is Neapolis, and that's what is ancient Shechem. So that's a uh, uh, that's where he grew up, but but apparently, as it's interesting, also um, the one of the found sort of the founder of Christian Gnosticism, uh, Simon Magus, also uh, came from from uh, this part of the northern Israel. This uh, Samaritan, he was, but he was a Samaritan apparently. But that's uh, we don't think of that area as being a you know, great center of civilization uh, in post Old Testament, but you hear you have two significant people of this of early Christianity coming from there. He apparently early on went to live in Ephesus and he must have uh, you know, his family somehow he was able to, to get an education. He tells us that he went first to he was well he was interested in, in studying philosophy so he went first to the Stoics and studied with them. The Stoics are teaching about the ethical life and self-discipline, and um, their main thing was ethical conduct. But they did not really have much of a belief in God or interest in God as such. So he, because he was interested in coming into communion with God, this finally he got tired of the Stoics, and he went off to study with the Aristotelians. The Aristotelians were uh, followers of Aristotle. They were they were. Uh, uh, Mater there was materialist philosophy, and in this case, it was the uh, the teacher wanted you know to, was mainly concerned about his fees, so he felt that he was not really uh, going to be a religious guide for him, so he left him. Went to the Pythagoreans, and the Pythagoreans wanted him to study mathematics and music and all these other things before he could start studying uh, spiritual things, so he didn't got discouraged there because he thought it would take him too long to try to learn all that stuff. So then he ended up with the Platonists, and he was very happy with them because um, with Plato, you know, Plato focuses on the spiritual world um, the with the good or the kind of the, the one God and the um, and, and particularly with the kind of a, the reaching of spiritual contemplation with him. So this uh, fascinated Justin, and he became a Platonist philosopher. He then was uh, living in Ephesus, and he was walking along the seashore, and and uh, an old man came along while he was there, and they sort of started talking together, and the old man started uh, questioning his beliefs in Platonism, and showing him that you know Platonism was inadequate and telling started telling him about the Old Testament prophets and through this conversation he converted Justin to Christianity but then what we find out is that uh, that the uh, that he never was able to find out afterwards who this old man was that he met that had uh, had this conversation with him by the way, Ephesus is where uh, St. Paul lived and uh, Apollos in the New Testament. This was kind of center of Christian missionary work. Uh, later, it's where St. John uh, the Evangelist or St. John the Theologian lived there. And, of course, it's possible that it was uh, one of them appearing to him. But this was a center of, of Christianity. We know that he was there through the 130s because um, his first his first work, and I should just say something about the books here. The uh, 
The historical references to Justin are found in Eusebius's Church History, which is the standard uh, source for our all early Christian history before Constantine. His works, um, perhaps the easiest place to find them is the Anti-Nicene Fathers series, Volume 1, which that's got the Apostolic Fathers. That's probably the best deal. You know, it's got this Volume 1. It's got so much stuff in it. But uh, it has not only... Um, the three major works, but it has uh, some of the questionable works, and also it has a collection of all the quotations from Justin of other writers, because a number of Justin's works are lost. So they only exist as in fragments as quoted by other people, and those are all assembled in here as well. So this, uh, this book would allow you to thoroughly study everything connected with Justin. Uh, so that's you know, and, and these things are pretty cheap, so that's, that's a good deal. The other um, book I would recommend is something called The Early Christian Fathers by Cyril Richardson, who was the editor. And he puts um, Apostolic Fathers, some of the Apologists, and Irenaeus all together in one volume, uh, which he manages to accomplish by considerable editing. So it's selections from these writers. But... Uh, but here in one paperback you have, you know, this the whole sweep of the second century. Cyril, C Y R I L, and then Richardson is the last, the last thing. And hopefully these are still around somewhere on Amazon or something. You could. Who's the publisher? Well, it was Macmillan back, you know, when I bought it. It's uh, this. I don't know who's if it's still in print or not, but but sometimes uh, online you can get used books. Okay. There's just uh, two other books I'd call your attention. This is um, volume one of a series called Patrology, written by Johannes Quasten. It's a Roman Catholic series, but it's the kind of the standard uh, reference work on patristics for, uh, well, for the early, you know, up to the classical period of patristics. And so it gives you the, the life of each, of each church father, their analysis of their principal works, and also what are the questionable works, and then the uh, short synopsis of his theology. Yes. Sort of as an aside, is that, is that a pretty good reference text for us, or is it really... Oh, no, it's, it's excellent, because these are... I mean, this is only the first volume, but there's, um, there's three volumes on, on, let's say, the Greek side, and then there's a, a Latin uh, fourth volume. Okay. I had just seen that set, and I didn't know... Yeah. No, it's it's nice. I mean, it's it's it is Catholic, but uh, but it has lots of information, <laughs> the life, the writings, and the and the theology. Principal works and the theology. Yeah, well, actually, all it it gives you the, all the works, and all the works ascribed to him that you know, and whether the ones that they tell even the, it tells you which ones they, he thinks are not, yeah, which are not uh, not the text. Just t- tells you that the what they are, the names of them, and a little synopsis of what each one's about. And, and theology. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Particularly on the apologist, um, the book by Robert Grant called The Greek Apologist of the Second Century, and this is a uh, very nice uh, kind of run-through of these people. That uh, Justin, there's a few chapters on Justin in there as well. Okay, they... <coughs> Dial, the uh, first work of Justin's that we have is called the uh, Dialogue with Trypho the Jew, and this is the uh, the source for the history I was just telling you about his early life because he gives it to us in there when he's and he's um, here he is he's going along and he's already become Christian but apparently he continued to wear the clothing of a philosopher and as far as we can see that um, when he as a Platonic philosopher, when he became Christian, he did not change his vocation. He remained a uh, professional philosopher, and in those days, uh, they didn't have uh, state, you know, big universities. You as were a teacher. You basically were like a tutor, and you would kind of take students. So it seems like up till his death, that's what he did. He remained just like any of these, you know, Stoic philosopher, Platonic philosopher. They would all individual philosophers would have their students and they would, if there's their kind of personal school, and Justin <coughs> would just 
uh, was a Christian philosopher and uh, and taught students <coughs> as well. So, he, but he meets um, walking th through the in the town. He meets Trifo, who it, we uh, connect with a, a rabbi Tarfan, who is a, a real person, who whose uh, writings are um, or opinions are in the uh, Mishnah, which are uh, part of the Jewish uh, commentaries on the Old Testament. He uh, was living in Palestine, and then during the the Jews revolted twice against the Romans, the first time in 70 AD when uh, the temple was destroyed, and then again under someone named Bar Kokhba, who declared himself to be the Messiah and began uh, had a second rebellion in the 130s. How do you spell that second name? Oh, uh, T-A-R-P-O-N. Actually, I'm sorry. It's and it's tra Tarpon. Tarpon. Yeah. And is the dialogue actually with Tarpon? Yes. Yeah. But he just kind of changed the name. For well, it just, well, the TRP <laughs> is N is there. It's just somehow the way it got uh, transliterated in, the, in our text so changed it a little bit. So these are two different people? No, it's the same person. Rabbi Tarpon is the trifo that, uh, okay. that in, you know, on the title of our text here. Okay. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the rabbi, you know, was with his people and he, sees uh, Justin dressed as a philosopher and he is very anxious to go uh, talk to him and he he uh, like uh, Philo earlier was one of the uh, Jewish people who uh, became interested in in Greek philosophy and uh, and tried to perhaps try to reconcile the two, or saw them anyway as legitimate, both as legitimate uh, things. And so he asks, you know, he starts talking with Justin, and Justin you know, tells him his life story, and everything is fine up until he gets to the part where he becomes a Christian. And uh, Tarpon says, well, you know, that's what you were doing was great, you know, I'm glad you're seeking God, and uh, you would have been well off if you had stayed with the Platonists. But or, you know, if you really want to do something more, you know, you could come, be circumcised, and follow the Old Testament law, you know, and that would be better. But but those are the two paths of salvation. And, and uh, you know, now I see, you know, you've been deceived and you've become a Christian. So they, so the rest is a long, it's a kind of long book. The rest of the book is their discussion. And the main uh, problem Rabbi Tarpon has with the Christians is that he feels that they, you know, that he... he thinks that by not following the Old Testament law that they've kind of abandoned the path of righteousness that in the Old Testament. And in the book, interestingly, uh, Justin, in replying, the book is full of references to the Old Testament. You know, he, he basically argues it all out um, kind of exegetically, you know, using, using the Old Testament, which would be the same arguments that uh, the rabbi would use. And he argues there that the uh, Old Testament law is temporary and that it's now been kind of superseded by the coming of Christ. And he tries to prove that, that Jesus is the Son of God and the promised uh, Messiah. And then he argues that the church is the new Israel, as opposed to the uh, idea that the church is something separate from, from Israel. So this... Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that Tarpon became a Christian, but anyway, they, they got a good book out of this uh, argument. So it's, it's very interesting because here, you know, it shows Justin is very familiar with the text of the Old Testament. The, whereas the other works that we're going to see, uh, Justin is largely arguing from philosophy. So, but the, it shows you in a way that each, that the books, uh, because books are written to a particular audience on a particular point can only give you a partial view of what a person is like. So from reading one of these books, you would never suspect that the other books, you know, <laughs> that, the, that this person is going to be able to argue sort of on both, uh, both fields. But um, after his time in, in Ephesus, where he wrote this, he moved to Rome and became... Um, 
sort of set up there as his school of philosophy. And he, from we know uh, from the account of his martyrdom that the, at least some of the students that he was getting there were uh, people who were born of Christian families that were coming from uh, Asia Minor. So uh, one of the students was from Iconium, which was one of the cities uh, visited by St. Paul, and his parents were Christian. And another one, I think, was from uh, uh, Cappadocia, which is a little maybe closer back towards Antioch, but also in uh, Asia Minor. And so, so um, as we'll see later with Irenaeus, you know, that a lot of the Christians in the West were people who were, were coming from the area where our New Testament and, let's say, post-apostolic missions were concentrated in the East. And they, as they immigrated to the West, they, of course, brought Christianity with them. So he had those type of people. And one of his students, we know, was a uh, servant in the household of Caesar. So we see the beginning of what will increase later is that the Christians start being part of the you know people working in the imperial government. Uh, when we get to the persecutions of Diocletian, <coughs> you know, the the problem, you know, was that these people all worked for the emperor, and so the emperor, uh, you know, when he started persecuting, it was his own household, and then all the, you know, officers in the army and governors were being put to death, and that's a lot of our uh, great martyrs, you know, such as George and Demetrius, were people who were uh, had positions of authority, but who accepted to give those up and be uh, be martyred for the sake of Christ. Uh, when he when he gets to Rome, one of the, the uh, this is at the time of uh, Marcus Aurelius, who is the philosopher emperor. The which is a good thing. I mean, the there's a lot of the apologists were writing uh, because they were writing to emperors who favored philosophy, and they were philosophers who had become Christians, so they were writing uh, to sort of fellow philosophers uh, who were emperors, trying to argue that it was wrong to persecute Christianity. But um, uh, there were also philosophers who didn't like Christianity, and, and Marcus Aurelius's tutor, uh, his name was Fronto, in 143, wrote a, an attack on Christianity, accusing it of immorality and sedition. So that created a there was it was so it wasn't so easy for the apologists because they were not unopposed in, in this project. Now the the two uh, the next the, the major work. Other major work of, of uh, Justin, he wrote two dialogues. One's, the second one's somewhat short. The first one was written uh, about 156 in protest for the death of uh, Polycarp, Bishop uh, Polycarp of Smyrna, which is also on the coast of Turkey, the Aegean, had come to visit Rome. Everything was fine. He went back to Smyrna, and then he was hunted down and, and put to death there. And um, Justin writes this dialogue protesting that, first off saying that the uh, policies of the empire were that Christians were not supposed to be hunted down, or, but rather only, um, you know, once you're in court, though, if you're told to stop being a Christian, you would be put to death if you didn't. But uh, but here, so he's saying that, well, they first off, they're breaking this. And then he's he's making his, uh, well, also then here he, he brings up kind of the notion that philosophy opposes paganism. So he's saying, well, you, here you are, uh, you're a philosopher, you know, just like, just like me, and, you know, surely you see that, uh, that the pagan, the immorality of pagan religion isn't, isn't good, and this belief in many gods is, is all uh, fake, and, and that really there's one God who, you know, wants us to live righteous lives, and this is what we Christians are doing. And so therefore, you should see Christianity as a something that you should be defending, and that message is you know pretty recurrent. And the apologist Justin is you know perhaps one of the um, his books are the maybe one some of the longer ones. So that's uh, he's more prominent. But the um, other thing he argues sort of on a legal basis uh, is that well when someone is a Christian and they're arrested. If they apostatize and say, "Well, I'm not a Christian," you know, I'm not going to be Christian anymore. You just let them go. Well, that means so if Christianity were truly a crime, 
just to say that I'm not going to do it anymore wouldn't get me out of prison. You know, I would I would uh, still have to be punished. But because you're letting people go, then you're admitting that in fact there's no crime. So that's uh, that they're just being uh, put to death for the name rather than for a true crime. And so what he, he's asking for is that there be investigations into if there's any accusations of crimes, let the crimes be investigated and punished. But don't don't arrest and and punish people just for the name of being Christian. <coughs> his uh, the main part of of his uh, content of his of his of his uh, apologies is this let's say appeal philosophical appeal to the emperors. And so I'll uh, first of all I'll just I'll write a little outline. Oh, there's no uh, paper here, so I'm gonna running out. But anyway. Justin's uh, idea, which is also taken up later by Clement, is that God is revealing himself to the world um, through, well, and that, that the Son of God is the Logos, okay, which uh, in the New Testament, God in the beginning was the Word. And in philosophy, in, in uh, Platonic philosophy, the, the term Logos uh, refers to... Uh, a kind of not just reason in yourself that you're a rational being, but a kind of divine reason that comes from the one. And this, um, which that so this in a sense, in some Platonic philosophy, there's a sort of trinitarian model of uh, the one, the logos, and the so, and soul, and uh, that gets identified with in a way with the Trinity and the logos is the source of reason throughout the created universe. And so he sees God through the Logos as revealing himself to the Jews through the Old Testament. But he believes that God is revealing himself to the whole creation. And so that there's uh, knowledge of the truth going out to everyone, and that includes, particularly besides the Old Testament, he sees this, uh, as being philosophy, particularly uh, Greek philosophy. He presupposes that there's an original, you know, kind of perfect philosophy that comes out and that that the the reason all the philosophers disagree now is because, you know, human uh, weakness sort of leads to a fragmentation of this knowledge which God delivered initially. But uh, so he is able to look at the philosophers and admire, you know, say that certain parts of what they're saying are correct and they're in error in certain things and his kind of favorite really is uh, Plato and well and, and of course Socrates behind Plato. And so his argument to the Roman emperors is that God is revealing himself um, to everyone and that part of this revelation is the Old Testament to the Jews, and the other part of it is philosophy that's come to the Romans, to the Roman Empire, which, if if so that the the emperor's loyalty to philosophy should lead, and rejection of paganism, should lead them then to want to learn more by going to the Old Testament. And he, he argues for a superiority of the Old Testament prophets to the Greek philosophers, <clears throat> and uh, and also then of course the logos himself becomes incarnate in Christ, and so that that's uh, of course if you're if so if you're trying to uh, come to the knowledge to the knowledge of God through Greek philosophy, well that's good to study the things the writings <coughs> that are kind of inspired by the logos, but in Christianity one can come to know the logos personally. So he uses this sort of combination of, well, let's say a Christian Christian Trinitarian theology and this idea of um, God's inspiration of of everyone as as a tool to try to link the two together. And I'll I'll read you some quotes from him, just so you can um, get the idea. We have, we have been taught that Christ is the first begotten of God 
and have previously testified that he is the reason, or logos, of which every race of man partakes. Those who lived in accordance with reason are Christians, even though they were called godless, such as among the Greeks, Socrates and Heraclitus, and other like, others like them, among the barbarians, Abraham, Ananias, Azariah, and Mishael, and Elijah, and many others. So he's again saying so how Socrates was persecuted and kind of seen as an enemy of the gods. Uh, and then, of course, he's, I don't know if you, uh, Ananias, you know, Daniel and the youths were persecuted. So the, the persecution of the Daniel in the Old Testament, Socrates, uh, is, is analogous to the persecution of Christians. Uh, another place in the second in the second uh, apology that was from the first apology in the second he says but in Christ who is partially known even by Socrates for he he was and is the word who is in every man um, and this um, just say that in in Athenagoras who is one of the other uh, Platonist philosophers at this I mean one of the other apologists he basically makes the same argument uh adding even, even more uh, philosophers who suffered. I didn't know, uh, apparently Pythagoras was burned to death with his disciples. So he's he's put in there as one of the precursors of, of Christian martyrs. And he he, um, he identifies the demons as being the ones who are wanting to, well, because Justin identifies the demons as the source, as being the pagan gods. And so the demons who have everybody worshiping them and he does this based on the immorality of the pagan mythology. They they don't want, of course, to lose their worship, so they are the ones leading people to to persecute, uh, to kill Socrates and to kill to kill the Christians. The truth must be told. In old times, demons manifested themselves, so that those who did not judge these occurrences rationally were filled with awe, taken captive by fear. And not understanding that these were evil demons, they called they they not understanding that they were evil demons, they called them gods. When Socrates tried by true reason and with due inquiry to make these things clear and to draw men away from the demons, they, working through men who delighted in wickedness, managed to have him put to death as godless and impious, saying that he was bringing in new divinities. And now they do the same kind of thing to us. For these errors were not only condemned among the Greeks by reason through Socrates, but among the, barbar the barbarians by reason himself, who took form and became man and was called Jesus Christ. And then um, the other uh, thing, uh, he has a, a nice quote, uh, Whatever things are rightly said among all men are the property of us Christians. And I just want to contrast that later with the uh, Tertullian in the West, who his famous statement is, "What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem?" And he see, is, uh, I think, another what he calls philosophy is the mother of all heresies. And uh, also Hippolytus uh, sees that all, you know, all he claims that all Christian heresies are based on ancient philosophers. But the uh, different attitude to Greek philosophy. So Tertullian is someone who just kind of rejects everything wholesale, whereas uh, the, the apologists were saying, well, no, that that uh, the struggle of philosophy against pagan religion was also, was, 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 was the same, you know, in a way, the same, that you're, that they were part of the same struggle that we're part of. And so they are much more, I mean, saying that basically everything that's true said by anyone is part of somehow part of Christianity. So it's a much more positive approach. Uh, but Tertullian, of course, he ends up uh, being a uh, sectarian, that's, and that's uh, part of uh, perhaps some of the, you know, the tension in the church would, we'll maybe look at later. So this was, these were written around the 150s. Justin was debating with the um, other philosophers in Rome and one of them was named Crescens, who was a cynic philosopher and who knew very little about Christianity. And he would get into debates with Justin and Justin would uh, discredit him. So he didn't like that. So he went and complained to the government that uh, Justin was a Christian and demanded that he be arrested. 
And so Justin and some of his students were taken and brought to the governor who wanted to uh, have them agree to worship the pagan gods. And then when they didn't, they were uh, beheaded. And the account of this uh, is, in, is also in here, in this book. Uh, it's uh, one of the early uh, martyrdom accounts. It's basically a uh, like a trial transcript. So this one, it's uh, that nobody has any questions about its authenticity or anything like that. It's just a lot of the early ones are like that. They're just a straight transcript. In this, um, is there a name to it? It's just called the martyrdom of. It's called the. This, they call it the martyrdom of the holy fathers, or sometimes just called the martyrdom of Justin, because I think it's in. Um, might be also be in that book, uh, Witnesses for Christ or something. But uh, it's interesting when he's when he's uh, questioned, he answers uh, the the prefect answers. You know, well, what do they believe? And he he starts to answer, and his answer is almost a quote from the creed. And this is a reminder for those of us who sometimes might think, well, Nicene Creed, you know, so somebody in 325 got down and said, well, what should Christians believe and, you know, came up with a creed? Well, not that's not true. The thing that happened in 325 was they added the word homoousios to the baptismal creed that already existed. And um, Irenaeus tells us that these, this, what he calls the rule of faith, it goes back to the apostles. And Justin kind of basically quoting, you know, the first part of the creed here uh, reminds us of that, that this is uh, something that was an ancient uh, document, that the practice of, uh, an ancient practice of having a creed for for baptism particularly, but uh, that, and you see it um, in Irenaeus' own writings, uh, it's a very similar uh, rendition of the creed. I, a question, uh, okay, so Justin and the, a lot of these uh, apologists, they live in, in the uh, first part of the second century, particularly between the 130s and 170s. They were doing a lot of their writing, I guess, uh, you know, sparked by emperors who were sympathetic to philosophy. But in 177, okay, well, Justin himself is killed in 165, and uh, in 177, Marcus Aurelius authorizes the uh, uh, martyrdoms in uh, Gaul, uh, in uh, Lyon. Uh, and that's a, a good account of that in, in Eusebius. And so there's this uh, massive persecution there and lots of people tortured to death. And um, you could ask the question, well, gee, these, you know, these guys didn't really, uh, you know, they wrote all these books to the emperors, but it didn't seem to do any good. You know, the emperors then go ahead, went ahead and persecuted the Christians, and <clears throat> they didn't become Christian. <clears throat> but uh, when we think of the long term, actually, the fact that, uh, you know, when Diocletian's persecution begins, that we have uh, a St. George who's uh, high up in the army, and there's uh, Procopius who's the governor, and there's all these people working in the palace, <clears throat> that uh, and that uh, the uh, the church that Diocletian orders destroyed is the, in the in the capital Nicomedia, that he can watch the destruction of the church from his palace. You know, we often think, well, Christians up until Constantine. In fact, some Israeli archaeologists said that in a, one of the news things recently about well that there were no churches before before Constantine, and it's like, well, no, <laughs> there there were very large churches, and Christians became very prominent in society and um we have uh, one of the, the emperor's mothers consulting with uh with origin about uh, questions and uh, one of the emperors philip the arabian is thought maybe was either was a christian or was sympathetic with christianity but the emperors or no emperors the the general society seems to have come to accept christianity and christianity became pervasive especially in the east at the time of the, because when you get to the persecutions, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people being killed. And the um, question is, well, how did that happen? You know, especially if at the time of, uh, you know, because there were these accusations of immorality and and uh, cannibalism, which Justin says, you know, are because the Gnostics, he 
blames it on the Gnostics practicing these things, and since the Gnostics don't get martyred, they the Gnostics would never would uh, would agree to sacrifice the pagan gods. The Christians were being blamed for what the Gnostics were doing. So how did it go from the time when people were thinking of Christians as as evildoers to a time when Christianity is accepted and even respected in the Roman Empire? And that transition, uh, at least partially, I think has to do with the uh, line of argumentation that the that the uh, apologists took of essentially identifying Christianity with with the quest of philosophy and uh, giving in a way giving Christianity a kind of connection to educated Roman opinion and let's say to uh, a legitimacy within Roman thought so that uh, in the long run the you know when people also sometimes think well yeah Christian the Empire became Christian because Constantine decided to make it Christian as if you know everybody was pagan and then all of a sudden Constantine comes along okay we're going to be Christian tomorrow and everybody becomes Christian but what we find is that Christianity uh, in fact converted large portions of the Empire prior to Constantine and when Constantine became Christian what what happened was that the Diocletian at you know decided to try to get rid of Christianity but it was a uh, it was so terrible persecution because Christianity had become so entrenched already and ultimately he failed to be able to kill enough people to get rid of it and so what Constantine did was ended that persecution and accepted Christianity himself but there was uh, the process of the conversion was something that had already happened in the uh, you know, 150 years in between, sort of. So that, and that process had a lot to do with all of these uh, Christian converts who, uh, you know, in, were were trying to reach out to their uh, pagan neighbors and and bring them into the church. There's there's just um, one other thing that is significant about Justin that I wanted to mention, uh, and was significant for me because. Uh, you know, I was a Baptist, and uh, one of the things we were taught was the, that the early church was Baptist. And you know, when Constantine came along, you know, he introduced Roman Catholicism. And uh, you know, often you know your friends, you know, like, oh, we're having a New Testament. You know, we have a New Testament church. Well, what do you do? Oh, well, we all sit around with guitars and we play, you know, and uh, sing songs. And so, you know, so there's this kind of question, like, well, what exactly is the New Testament church? And and uh, the um, Justin is very helpful for people like like I was who uh, you know didn't really know much about what the early church was like because in trying to dispel the accusations against the Christians, Justin describes the services for us and he gives a, a description of the baptism, uh, the Eucharist, and well and the liturgy. Okay, and the description basically allows us to see that the structure, uh, the basic structure of that service is our service. I mean, that we are, we are, I mean, of course, something like the Trubic hymn, you know, comes later, and there's, you know, it's not, there wasn't uh, no development, I mean, it wasn't just written down, you know, here it is, and here's the book, don't change anything, but that that whatever things are is an elaboration of a service that was already there. Now, of course, the other thing that would tell you that is when you realize how much of our services come back to the synagogue and the temple. So obviously at what point were Christians, uh, you know, arranging their services based on synagogues and temples? Well, not, you know, not in the Middle Ages, but the only time was when they were, when the early Christians, because the early Christians were Jewish as the apostles, you know, they when they went around and started holding services, uh, Basically, they were coming from a synagogue and they held synagogue services and their ideas about, you know, the sacraments were connected to the worship in the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So that would tell you already that uh, just that would give you a hint. But uh, Justin further corroborates that by describing these things for us. The other thing that in describing the uh, Eucharist is that he makes very clear that this is the body and blood of Christ can only be partaken of by Christians uh, living a Christian life. And so uh, things that today, 
you know, we like so uh, again Baptists, you know, say, well, it's just symbolical, and and you know, where does this uh, idea of it being the body and blood of Christ come from? Well, obviously, we saw in Ignatius, you know, that he's very adamant about that, and Justin also is. So that's another uh, thing for me when I was again, I was I was studying this as a, as a Baptist, and uh, it made me realize that. Uh, you know, it wasn't just a question of us all sitting in the 20th century trying to decide what these passages in Scripture meant, but that um, that these positions had been, you know, thought about back at the time of the apostles and, and a following, and the people coming from the apostolic time and the church at that time had, you know, one interpretation of how the, this is my body and this is my blood, what, what that was, and it was that they were his body and blood. So that... Uh, was significant to me in, in sort of, again, affirming the continuity of Orthodox Church with the Apostolic Church and realizing that uh, some of the, the things that I had been taught, you know, uh, in Protestantism were modern developments. So that was, uh, was helpful. Yes? Um, is there a particular book that describes these services that you just referred to? Yeah, the first... Uh, the first apology of, of this. It's, a, it's the it's towards the end of the t of the of the, the one with typo typo. Well, there's there's three things he wrote uh, that the three main works. There's some other questionable ones, but the the dialogue of Trifo. Okay, so that's in the 130s. Then the first um, first apology in the 150s, and that's the longest. Uh, of the two apologies, the trifo dialogue trifos, but most of his theology is in the ap first apology. Okay, so this, this description is in that first. Is in apology. is in the first apology. So that's one fifty six, and then he wrote a second apology uh, when there was a persecution of someone in Rome, and that would have sometime sometime after that, between that and one sixty five when his death. But that's the second apology is a uh, pretty short. But they're all in in the uh, Nicene Fathers volume. The okay. the um, Cyril Richardson, I think his all his sect selections are really from just the first apology. Okay, and that's I think that's all I was going to say. Uh, so unless you have do you have any other questions? Yes. What uh, analogies were there between Platonism and the Old Testament? Um, well, he it's more he sees it as between with Christianity. Um, well, okay, first off, because the belief in one God and rejection of polytheism, belief in m morality, so that, I mean, all the apologists, you know, the belief, the uh, Old Testament morality uh, fit in with the idea of, of Stoicism particularly, but also the other philosophers that uh, the importance of, of a righteous life in coming to be able to reach the spiritual contemplation of God, of the one God. Um, as opposed to the myths about uh, Zeus and all these people, uh, you know, these gods are all adulterous and murderers and cannibals, and they're all, you know, all pretty awful. So uh, pagan society was filled with immorality, and part of that immorality was connected with the uh, the mystery rites of these immoral gods. So that uh, was another element that, that pretty much all the apologists uh, point to, the immortality of the soul, uh, the difference is that he he sees the uh, uh, immortality in the sense of that we can live after death, but but the um, and that we are intended to be in communion with God. That's um, and there with uh, free will, the kind of the spiritual return to God through through righteousness and prayer. Uh, that's in kind of seen in Platonism and in Christianity. And then, um, thing, I guess I forgot to mention, one of the things that uh, Justin and um, some of the other apologists are, are anti-Gnostics. So, remember, it's sort of about Ignatius fighting against the Gnostics who rejected. Gnosticism is a kind of, uh, kind of, it's a, in a way a sort of otherworldly religion in the sense that it sees this world as evil, so rejects this world. Platonic philosophy uh, sees the uh, the created universe as coming from the one, you know that that uh, 
the one produces all this, and then we are supposed to respond by, you know, contemplating and, and coming, trying to reunite with the one through prayer. Um, Gnosticism sees everything in the universe as evil, and then basically you need secret knowledge to escape from this universe. So Gnosticism is kind of a, has a very negative view, and it's it's uh, also it's you know essentially lar a large part of Gnosticism essentially prescribes immorality. Uh, it's 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 a rejection of this world. It's a rejection of of virtue. And it's it's and it's kind of a um, you know, kind of a cultic uh, way of of life, and so the uh, interestingly, well, the the Neoplatonist uh, Plotinus of the Neoplatonists was also very strongly anti-Gnostic, and um, and Justin and so the Platonist Christians are also you know that they are big on fighting Gnosticism, as is Ignatius, who is obviously coming from a you know a Jewish. Christian background, you know, but so uh, so that's an, uh, was another element of commonality between them. And but but they saw essentially Platonism as an ally with Christianity in this in fighting against the Gnostic rejection of uh, the Old Testament God and the creation of the world. Yes, you had a question. It seemed like poly polytheism seemed like kind of more the norm for a long time. Well, when did yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, there is within within polytheistic systems, there are hints of kind of primitive monotheism. Uh, one of the examples of that is that the, you know in the Old Testament, Abraham and and the patriarchs they're referring to El. Okay. Well, El, I mean, they call God El, essentially. Um, and El is the Canaanite name for the original God. And uh, El is not prominent in Canaanite mythology. He's sort of in the background. And, you know, mostly uh, Canaanite mythology deals with Baal and um, Amorite with uh, Marduk. But there's, in all these, you know, gods that come down, who are become you know more of the stories about there's there's often a, a sort of an original god kind of behind them so um it's not clear you know what the relations in a sense uh, the relationship of polytheism and monotheism now in modern in the sense of modern monotheism uh probably the old testament although well that's again again with abraham and such you know they they often call them henotheists where they um you know, obviously they're worshiping one god and and this was also true of the amorites in the time of the patriarchs not just not just our people but the amorite religion had this idea of a personal relationship with god but at the same time they didn't necessarily disbelieve in other gods you know but they just didn't think that those were the true god um and that you see that to some extent in the old testament and it's not unlikely that other, you know, that that might have been an element of paganism at certain periods too, where of seeing a sort of primacy of one god and maybe like we would think of angels or something. But that's, um, I think to some extent it's, you know, the question how that all works is somewhat uh, open to interpretation. But our, of course, you know, our particular monotheism comes from uh, the Old Testament and then Christianity and then Islam. Uh, now, it's interesting is that there was a monotheism in the desert of Saudi Arabia prior to uh, Islam. So that's um, you know, so so monotheism has has been around, and it's just a question of I mean, of course, the cities in the Mecca etc. had all these you know polytheistic worship going on there too. So Arab society somehow had both you know, prior to influence uh, from Christianity or Judaism. So I don't, so it's, anyway, there's no easy yeah, <laughs> answer to the question. So if Christ, when Christ came, has that influenced the monotheism as a philosophers, or? Um, no, not? no, because uh, Plato is from the uh, 300 B.C. Yes, and of course the whole, the whole, oh, 
the the whole uh, philosophical thing, you know, was developed, you know, sort of independently of that. Although some of the apologists suggest that Plato got his ideas from reading Moses, but hmm. but nobody, I don't. There's not too much support for that. Okay. <laughs> that's, I think that's. Uh, a nice way to it. Well, I think Justin actually does a better job. He just says God reveals Himself to everybody, so you know there's some truth out there for everyone who's you know willing to. And he just says, well, the and people like Plato were very spiritual, so they were, and Socrates, and they so they acquired more of this truth that God was revealing than other people. But uh, but that's no, they're not. It's not a result of Christianity. <laughs>